the American Battlefield Trust seeks to preserve our nation's hallowed battlegrounds and educate the public about what happened there and why it matters today. They permanently protect these battlefields for future generations as a lasting and tangible memorial to the brave soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. You can help save battlefield land today by visiting battlefields.org. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian, and I'm so thankful for each and every one of you tuning in each and every week to what I have to offer as far as podcasts are concerned. We're building this up. We're growing it. The numbers are increasing. I'm so very appreciative of that. Thank you all for liking, sharing, subscribing, rating the podcast. It means a hell of a lot to me, and I know it means a lot to those who come on here for interviews or uh, who just want to be on at a later point. They know that this thing is growing, and they're really appreciative of seeing that, and they're really excited for what's to come with this whole brand. Now, this week, I thought I would do something really cool, and I would take some of the audio from a live stream that I did with my good friends Avery Lentz and Patrick McGuire, and I would put it out here on the airwaves. Why do that? Because we did one of my Tattoo Historian Presents, and we did WTF Moments of the Civil War. Some of you may have tuned into the live stream. Some of you may have seen it later on. Uh, but let me tell you, it got the most numbers. It was the most uh, entertaining for the crowd. And I figured it should be taken out to a broader audience because... Avery Lentz has Battles and Banter podcast. He's on there. Patrick McGuire does History Things with Pat on Facebook. And it's really important to get these guys, uh, get their names out there to a wider audience as well. Because this is the front line of the history field from a public history standpoint in many new and exciting ways. And so to give these guys props, I figured I would pull the audio from the live stream and I would throw this up on here for a little bit of a wild card, something a little different. I know I've done this before, but this one is very special. Um, because I use WTF in the title, uh, both my sponsors couldn't carry it. So we lost some marketing in that way, and it wasn't uh, taken out to a broader audience uh, at that time. So I think this will make up for it, and I think that you'll enjoy it. Now, each of us handles a microphone differently. And I'm telling you that because uh, I I kind of can be the more quiet of the three of us as we're talking, but you'll be able to uh, envision that when we're, when we're doing this. Patrick is, uh, Pat is definitely the guy who's practically eating the microphone. And, uh, you know, I, I just sat back and laughed at him as he was, as he was riffing through it. Uh, you could tell he's played in a band and uh, he's just, He's got that style where he holds that mic right up to his mouth. So uh, you'll hear him a lot on here uh, doing some great stuff. But let me tell you, we did. We, each of us picked out two events in Civil War history that made us go, what the hell is that about? And uh, why did this happen? And it was really a great time. Even though we used WTF in the title, 
we had people from all across the generations come. Uh, many people know how to take a joke. Many people understand, uh, you know, what that's all about and understand that it fits into my brand. And we really had a great time, so much so that I've actually been approached by another uh, entity to possibly do another one of these in the future because this one was such a big hit. And there were people in the room who were uh, watching us to see how this was going to go, and they just loved it. So what I want to do is is bring you guys into this uh, you know, live stream presentation that we did. I want you to hear this audio, and I want you to experience it through your car radio, through your radio while you're doing laundry, whatever. Once you experience this WTF moments of the Civil War because we had a great time with it. And once again, the guys joining me uh, up on the dais are Avery Lance from Battles and Banter Podcast and Patrick McGuire of History Things with Path. And we were live at the Gary Owen Irish Pub and in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And we had a blast with this one. And we're talking about doing some future ones as well. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is our... Uh, Tattoo Historian presents live stream audio of WTF moments of the Civil War. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming out this evening and filling up the room. Uh, standing room only once again, which is awesome, uh, mainly because I have these two jokers with me. Uh, but uh, thank you all again for, for coming out. Thank you, uh, Alex, for taking over the bar tonight. Appreciate that, my friend. Uh, please treat Alex Thanks, well. Alex. And uh, you've been treating him well. You've been yeah. having like two. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> in the corner, so a couple yes, of beers is yes. good. So, so thank you to uh, thank you for coming out to the very, very unofficial opening of the CWI Summer Conference. Uh, as I put it, this is the pre-party, and yes, this is the pre-party to it. And uh, as we entitled it, WTF Moments of the Civil War. And I wanted to have a really cool panel with me, so I got these guys to come along for the ride. Uh, we have Avery Lentz from Battles and Banter Podcast. And we have Patrick McGuire from Woo! History Things with Pat. Hello. And uh, Pat's been making all those awesome videos for us that you've been seeing as we've been marketing this thing and trying to get it out there. So thank you, Pat, for doing all that. Thank you, welcome, Pat. Man. Thank you, yeah. guys. He's, uh, he's, a, he's a lot better at that than I'll ever be. I can do podcasts, but I can't do video. <laughs> Thanks so for watching. I appreciate that. So we wanted to entail this uh, uh, WTF moments of the Civil War because sometimes we don't hear about the weird and wild things that occurred uh, during the war, we sometimes hear people talk about operational history and some other stuff, but uh, sometimes you have to get down in the in the mire in the mud and see what's really going on and the things that uh, you know really take you back and be like, how did that happen and why did that happen? And uh, I couldn't think of a better title than WTF Moments of the Civil War, uh, so we went with that. And uh, so each of us uh, brought with us two anecdotes each. I guess you can call them anecdotes. anecdotes. And two weird stories. Yes, yes. Two weird stories from the Civil War. And uh, we're going to go over each of them and uh, see which one is the best, I guess. Oh, man. Is this a competition? 
I don't know. There's no prize. No oh. competition. There's no prize. Validation. Sorry. Sorry. Competition. Sorry. <laughs> it's totally a comp. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> so what we're going to do uh, is I'm going to turn over the first story to Avery. Uh-oh. Yes. On the spot. Well, Battles and Banter comes before history things with Pat and the Tattooed Historian, <gasps> alphabetically. Super well, since you buttered early, me up there, early in the alphabet. Yes. <laughs> so we're going to go with Avery first for his first anecdote, and then we'll go to Pat. And I'll go last. All right. Oh, cool. So my things aren't usually weird or wacky, but they are pretty wild. Uh, and I didn't even try to do this. I just picked these out from my experience as a park guide with the National Park Service working at Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. So you do a lot of Grant and Lee, you know, Grant versus Lee, a lot of those types of stories. And some of the weirder things that have come out of the campaign that starts in May of 1864 at the Battle of the Wilderness and ends in April of 1865 at the surrender of Appom at Appomattox Courthouse, you have these strange occurrences, uh, two of which, which could have drastically affected how these campaigns play out. And both uh, inadvertently involve both Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. So the first one, uh, it takes place on August 9th, 1864. This is during the Petersburg Campaign. Union Army of the Potomac and the Union Army of the James are now entrenched in brutal combat with the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia and I believe just Confederate Garrison Force. I don't even know what Beauregard's army was, but a large, very large campaign. And if some of you are familiar, you know that the Union headquarters is at City Point, Virginia, which literally sprung up overnight. Uh, there was uh, massive flows of supplies, men and material. They actually built a railroad from City Point all the way to the trenches on the front line. So it's a pretty impressive place. But on August 9th, 1864, an occurrence happens. Uh, there was a barge that was floated down the James River and was docked at a wharf at City Point uh, around 11.30 in the morning. On August 9th, Grant is sitting at his headquarters tent uh, near this wharf. He's discussing uh, logistics and kind of the upcoming plans with his staff. Orville Babcock, Horace Porter are there. They are present. And then at 11.30, all of a sudden, there is this massive explosion, and it rocks the entire wharf. Um, and Grant, he is going to... Uh, basically just be knocked flat by this explosion, and everyone is just showered with shrapnel. It turns out this barge was loaded with ammunitions and explodes. And this is the account according to Horace Porter. He says, an event occurred in the forenoon of August 9th, which looked for an instant as if it, the general-in-chief had returned to his headquarters only to meet his death. He was in, sitting in front of his tent, surrounded by several staff officers. General Sharp, the assistant provost marshal general, had been telling him that he had a conviction that there were spies in the camp at City Point and had proposed a plan for detecting and capturing them. So a uh, quick tidbit, that's George Sharp. He was the head of the Bureau of Military Information here during the Battle of Gettysburg. He's still on Grant's staff in 1864. And... According to Porter, he says, he had just left the general when at 20 minutes to 12, so about 11.40, uh, a terrific explosion shook the earth, accompanied by a sound which vividly recalled the Petersburg mine, still fresh in the memory of everyone present. Then there rained down upon the party a terrific shower of shells, bullets, boards, and fragments of timber. The general was surrounded by splinters and various kinds of ammunition, but fortunately was not touched by any of the missiles. Orville Babcock of the staff was slightly wounded in the right hand by a bullet. One mounted orderly, and several horses were instantly killed, and three orderlies were wounded. On rushing to the edge of the bluff, we found that the cause of the explosion was the blowing up of a boat loaded with ordnance stores, which lay at the wharf at the foot of the hill. Much of the damage was done to the wharf. The boat was entirely destroyed. 
All the laborers employed on it were killed, and number of men and horses were fatally injured. Total casualties were 43 killed and about 120 wounded. And so that is Porter's account of this explosion. And you think, you know, pretty far back behind the lines, you should be safe, uh, especially if you're the general-in-chief, especially if you're commanding all the armies. And Grant nearly loses his life on this day. Now, upon investigating the Union, War Department concludes by September that this was an accident. Somebody was reckless, maybe lit a fire when they shouldn't have been and placed it too close to the live ammunition. Um, and Grant, being the calm, natural character he is under fire, doesn't even rush to the, to the cliff to look down upon the destruction after the blast. He calmly walks back to his tent, writes a telegram to Henry Halleck, uh, his chief of staff in D.C., and just tells him a play-by-play what happened and moves, abon- moves on about their business. Uh, the blast does not affect uh, the campaign for the Union side. In fact, it acts as if it never happened. So it's kind of in the, the character of the Petersburg mine in that regard. Uh, but it's interesting. This is where it gets interesting. According to Porter, in 1872, this is at the start of Grant's second term as president, uh, gets a letter. It's a complaint from a guy by the name of John Maxwell. And he claims he's an inventor, and he's complaining that he is not given the patents that he deserved. Uh, he's having people basically tell him uh, that he is a fake, a fraud. So he's writing to President Grant. Uh, and then John Maxwell just kind of out of nowhere, just as like, you know, during the Civil War, I invented a device that almost claimed the life of your dear president. And he says, what do you, basically telegraphs back, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> and, uh, you know, John Maxwell says, yeah, you know, I used a clockwork mechanism to ignite about 12 pounds of gunpowder that I hid in a box called candles. It had candles on the box, and they secretly placed it on the barge. And before we move on, I'm, I know we're burning through time here, but I have that account. It's, this is even documented in the official record, so this is the proof. Uh, <laughs> says This is part of John Maxwell's report to his superior, which would have went up the line to Jefferson Davis himself. He says, sir, I have the honor to report that in obedience to your order and with the means and equipment furnished me by you, I left the city of Richmond on the 26th of July for the line of the James River to operate with the horological torpedo Against the enemy's vessels navigating that river. Solid name. I know. (laughs) Horological torpedo, repeating that one. Um, Had with me Mr. R.K. Dillard, who was well acquainted with the localities and whose service I engaged for the expedition. On arriving in Isle of Wright County on the 2nd of August, (laughs) we learned of immense supplies of stores being landed at City Point. And for what purpose? Uh, by (laughs) By stratagem of introducing our machine upon the vessels there, discharging stores started for that point. We reached there before daybreak on August 9th last with a small amount of provisions, having traveled mostly by night and crawled upon our knees to pass the East Picket Line. Requesting my companion to remain behind about a half a mile, I approached cautiously the wharf with my machine and powder covered by a small box. Finding the captain had come ashore from a barge, then at the wharf, I seized the occasion to hurry forward with my box, Being halted by one of the wharf sentinels, I succeeded in passing him by representing that captain had ordered me to convey the box on board. Hailing a man from the barge, I put the machine in motion and gave it in in his charge. He carried it aboard. The magazine contained about 12 pounds of powder. Rejoining my companion, we retired to a safe distance to to witness the effect of our effort. In about an hour, the explosion occurred. Its effects was communicated to another barge beyond the one operated upon and also to a large wharf building containing their stores, the enemies, which was totally destroyed. The scene was terrific, and the effect deafened my companion to an extent from which he has not recovered. 
My own person was severely shocked, but I am thankful to Providence that we have both escaped without lasting injury. We obtain and refer you to the enclosed slips from the enemy's newspapers, which afford their testimony of the terrible effects of this blow. The enemy estimates the loss of life at 58 killed in 126 minutes, so it's a little off. Uh, but we have reason to believe it greatly exceeded that. Uh, that pecuniary damage we heard estimated at four million, but of course we can give you no account of the extent of it exactly. So the actual cost and damages was about two million dollars, which still in 1864 is a lot of money. And so, I mean, when they finally did the order, uh, the kind of investigation into the ordinance, I can't say ordinance tonight, <laughs> they discovered that uh, what had detonated was about 30,000 artillery shells and 75,000 rounds of ammunition. So that's enough to basically crater City Point. Um, and this is what, you know, Horse Porter is learning while he's serving on President Grant's staff in 1872. So he's like, oh my God, that was an assassination attempt on General Grant. And can you imagine, you know, if we had lost Grant in August of 1864, you know, who would they have had to replace him? How would the war have gone on after that? I mean, that would have been shocking. Even, you know, almost a year before Lincoln's assassination, I mean, that could have altered history completely. So when I learned that, and you know, it was a visitor who came to me. You know, you have visitors that come and tell you stories. He said, "Hey, you hear about Grant almost getting killed at City Point?" And I was like, "No, what?" And Red Horse Porter, and sure enough, I was like, "Oh my God, WTF!" <laughs> you know, so like, I like that was a perfect story for this. So that's my first. I, I makes you wonder with uh, with the successful Atlanta campaign having played out, if Grant is gone, if a certain <sighs> somebody named William to comes to Sherman comes <laughs> north. To bring that fire oh. in the <laughs> literally. Oh. So that's like a that's a plot for Rambo or something. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Starring William T. Sherman. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, hey, everybody. Pat, you have to beat that. Oh, I Top beat that. that. So, oh, mic uh, drop. Uh, my name is Pat McGuire. Uh, I'm an independent historian, so I uh, I don't have any formal education in this. I was just the nerd that grew into doing this on a pretty big level. So, um, the two stories I bring to you come from the West. Uh, one of them involves Grant. It's sort of a, it's around the same time that a lot of this is playing out. So um, we're going to talk about one of the most prolific snipers in American history. It's not Chris Kyle or any of the famous Vietnam snipers that are out there. This is a guy it's named not Jack. Jude Law from Enemy it's at the Not Gates. Jude oh, Law, man. for sure. No way. Um, greatest sniper ever. <laughs> but uh, no, this is, uh, this is Jack Henson or Old Jack. Uh, a lot of this story is... is is fun because there's a solid bit of fact and, and written and stuff to back it up, but there's also a ton of lore behind it. So there's a, you know, it's a kind of, when you hear the story, it's sensational. You head scratch and WTF, and then you'll also be like, where is the actual story in this? Like, where's the fact? So uh, it's cool. So Old Jack uh, is a sort of staunch secessionist on the borderlands between Tennessee and Kentucky. Um, at the beginning of the war, he is very pro-secession, but he's anti the actual bloodshed of the war. So he's kind of like one of these really conflicted dudes. Uh, he lives in Stewart County, Tennessee. He's a real prosperous farmer. So uh, when the war breaks out, um, even though he is pro the secession but anti the war, he just tries to go about his life as this sort of phone neutral, peaceful farmer just doing his thing on the borderlands in the in-between river area uh, of Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, his sons don't feel this way. Some of them outright join the Confederate Army. Um, one of them ends up leading a sort of home guard kind of partisan bushwhacker group. And, uh, and it's at this sort of point where the the Union Army has succeeded in their first major victories of the whole war at it at Forts Henry and Donaldson. So, you know, Grant is here. Um, 
his army's moving through the area. And at one point, Grant is actually a guest at the Hinson estate. And when he's there, just, you know, as a guest moving through the area, he decides he likes it so much, he sets up his temporary command. So he's here. He's just a, a major general at the time. But, you know, he's, you know, he likes this place enough. He's got a command. He's like, this is the spot. So as the army moves on, life sort of is moving on in the area in a very unpeaceful way. The Union Army is controlling the area permanently for basically the duration of the war, but there is a total sentiment of uh, of secession and just not being down with this Union occupation. So there are bushwhackers, bummers, drovers. There's a lot of guerrilla activity. The Union Army is being harassed by a lot of raids and things like that. Um, and it's at this point where uh, sort of simultaneously, two of his sons are out on a hunting trip, and it's not really confirmed whether they actually were bushwhackers or not, but they were sort of apprehended as bushwhackers instead of just, you know, being independent hunters, civilians, minding their own business. And the the story is that they are executed because um, the policy at the time is if you're apprehending one of these bushwhackers, we're not giving them a trial. This is just, we're ending this. We need to send a message that we're down here. This war is over. We're occupying this land, like just enough. Um, so they, they tie his kids up to a tree. They shoot him down. And then sort of in a very uncivil war-like manner. We'll sort of transport ourselves back to the medieval times. Um, their bodies are paraded around um, one of the local town squares, and then they're beheaded. And the heads are mounted to a pike on the plantation gates. So this is weird, right? Because this is 1862. So there's no real like written record of this, but this is Wait, the like story. Like zero to 100 real fast. Yeah, like real yeah. fast, Jeez. right? My so gosh. it's at this point also where the written record picks back up, and the Hinsons are sort of forced from their estate because they're sort of the neighbors in the area are not cool with this sort of. We just don't want to get involved. They just sort of like, if you don't want to get involved, get the hell out of the area. So they're they're harassed, things like that. And the Union Army comes by at the same time and just sort of drives them out of their property. So, so judging between the real written record of them being forced out of their property and probably being pissed off about that, and then obviously having the like bloodlust of you just murdered my kids, Jack Hinson definitely disappears into the woods in the sort of Rambo-style partisan. I'm now, you forced my hand. Now I'm going to, you know, side with the Confederates. I'm not really in the Army. I'm on my own, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking out my revenge on the Union Army. So, he, so Jack Hinson um, basically goes on a one-man murdering spree where I'm pretty sure Mel Gibson got his inspiration for The Patriot from because if Just anybody has seen about that. <laughs> if anybody's seen Mel Gibson go ham there's no other place than this story to get that from so so he, so Hinson uh, the story is that Hinson disappears into the woods he commissions a custom like 50 caliber Kentucky rifle it's especially made for long distance shooting it's based on the Whitworth you know one of these whole things, and he just starts making a list uh, and just starts dropping the names on his list. And it starts with the lieutenant that ordered the whole execution and beheadings of his son. And he's out in front of a column, moving through the area on a patrol, and Hinson puts him down. And then Hinson puts down a series of officers and decides he's just not, like, he doesn't, he's not satiated with this. It's like he needs more blood. So he just sort of spends a few years during the war just picking off Union Army and Naval officers. He's hiding along the river. Uh, he's taking pot shots at captains and majors, any brass he sees sort of moving around on the deck of a ship. And at one point, they, they lose so many officers on a ship and are kind of indefensible. We're in the middle of the river situation that an entire ship surrenders, thinking they're under fire from an entire company. <laughs> the captain freaks out, and he, he grounds the ship, and he uses his handkerchief as a surrender flag. And Henson's, you know, totally amused by this, but he's like, I'm one guy. So he kind of <laughs> sits there for a minute to see what they're going to do takes out a couple more brass when they show their heads, and then he leaves the area just to leave them wait. Because, I mean, he's one guy. He can't emerge from the woods, and suddenly this company's like, oh, it's one guy. Like, tables will turn. Let's so kill him, you know. <laughs> so, so Henson, like, 
uh, goes on this murder spree. The Union Army, there's the written record again that there's they're losing officers kind of in a in a in an extra manner out there. They're not really sure why this is happening. They, they're like, why are these bummers and drovers being successful snipers all of a sudden? So they, they go hunting. They can't find this guy. The locals, now that Hinson's involved, are helping him evade capture and things like that. And he does so successfully for the remainder of his life. Um, he, he at no point is ever caught by the Union Army. The Union Army credits him with up to 130 kills. Um, and, like, it's not really known how many he actually killed because Hinson didn't do a lot of, like, let me tell you about my murders um, after the war. Um, but but Hinson definitely served uh, uh, after, I guess, after the initial appearance of him cutting down Union officers, he did sort of join up in a more official capacity. Um, even though the Union Army's hunting him, he's serving as a Tennessee scout. He's got a small group of partisan guys with him now. And at one point, he actually leads Nathan Bedford Forest uh, on his on bet on Forest's successful uh, raid on the Johnsonville Depot. So you know you know there's a lot of stories out there that try to make John Hinson one of these sort of just peaceable leave me alone until the war like brought me in. But he was one of these guys that really believed in the the secession and just sort of just didn't want to get in the bloodshed, but was not about it. So when he was pulled into it, he like bought in completely. And after he got his kicks, he sort of just stuck around to help out. Um, and it's 1874 when he passes away and he's buried with official Confederate honors and, a, and an official tombstone. So um, John Henson might be the most prolific sniper in American history. Uh, but I would encourage you to do your own research on that because there is a ton of cool stuff out there and it's really hard to follow. But it's definitely a WTF moment. You don't hear a lot of like beheadings and like, you know, no. like, oh, look yeah. what we have done to your sons. <laughs> like that's, that's really evil and weird but you know that's that is a story that happens but um wow. yeah i mean i i'm a new parent so how could you i you know i i could sympathize with that like rage aspect of it but you know it's just uh yeah what the hell man that's that's outlaw josie wales yeah part. like yeah, yeah and, and like that's there's wild. there's stories of him throughout his encounters where he encounters a whole lot of random super famous people including like jesse james at one point who's another confederate partisan out there and like runs through the same area and at one point he crosses like two of the Earp brothers on their way home so like two two white Earps brothers are like heading home and he like just has a chat with them and just like you know. moves on it's like so it's like there's a ton of stories about jack hinson so but definitely as the renegade sniper it's like what the f it's a it's, it's a, crazy it's a funny thought to think about maybe like his neighbors to be like hey why don't you go invite Mr. Henson over for dinner tonight. And they have to go into the woods yeah. to be like, Mr. Henson? He's like, living, he's like living in a cave. He's like, what do you want? I wanted to invite you to dinner. He's just sitting there, like, cleaning his rifle. Just hear the rifle oh, cock. Oh, he's like, I guess I could eat. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a terrifying situation. Yeah. Yes. So what the F? That is amazing. Whew. I've never heard that story before. That's Top fantastic. that, John. I can't. <laughs> I, I, I'm, like, tapping out right now. I haven't even started. Done. Done. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Uh, for my first one, which I just, like I say, I can't, I don't know if I can top that. Thank you. Uh, Believe in you. Uh, thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a Chambersburg boy, born and bred, and uh, born and raised. And uh, so the, the North remembers, as we would say, uh, what happened to Chambersburg. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll rewind the tape to June of 1863. So Gettysburg uh, campaign, full swing, Confederate armies coming north. At the head of one of the columns is Albert Jenkins' cavalry. Albert <coughs> Jenkins is, a, is an interesting individual. Born in 1830, he has 
uh, a bunch of Virginia cavalrymen with them. They're the 14th, 16th, 17th, 34th, 36th Virginia, along with the Canwall Artillery. Uh, believe it or not, the Canwall Artillery in 1861 was commanded by George S. Patton Sr. So there's your World War II connection later on. Wow. Um, oh, but they're along with Jenkins coming through Chambersburg or getting ready to come, in, come into Chambersburg. Uh, as they're coming north down the valley, as we would say, uh, they, they clash with federal forces in Middletown, Berryville, Bunker Hill, Winchester, uh, and about June 14th, they arrive in Pennsylvania. So they get to Greencastle, Pennsylvania, which is about 11 miles south of Chambersburg, and they decide they're not done yet. So they, they go in there and they say, we want all the rifles you have. We want all the equipment that you have. Oh, by the way, we want the free black population as well. Yeah. And then they say, we're going to go to Chambersburg. We're not done. It's, it, the night is young. <laughs> so we're taking it's everything. About, so, so they got an 11-mile ride the night of June 14, 1863. They arrive on the outskirts of Chambersburg just south of town at about 11 at night. Send a couple scouts out front to go to the northern end of the town. And then they decide, well, let's intimidate the citizenry of Chambersburg a little bit. Now, maybe they'll give up a little quicker and give away those armaments and clothing and everything else. So while those pickets basically are going up, yeah, flexing their muscle, while they're going up north of town, there's a couple pickets going up that way, the rest of the column gets together and decides we're going to go in there with guns blazing. And it's going to look like blazing saddles. Oh. Okay. <laughs> So these guys There's mount Jim Wilder up. Wilder when you need him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Load of dimes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so these guys decide they're going to ride pell-mell into Chambersburg to try to scare the citizens with guns blazing at 11 o'clock at night when you can't see everything on the road. So in the middle of Chambersburg is our square, or as we would say here, the diamond. <coughs> uh, there's, a, there's a flagpole in the center of the town. And around that flagpole are abutments, kind of like when you park in a parking stall and there are concrete but, uh, things in front so you can't go over the parking stall. We have those in front of the flagpole in Chambersburg. Okay, so they surround that. So here comes Jenkins Cavalry, full bore, coming into Chambersburg. Scouts already north of town. What happens to the cavalrymen? The lead elements decide they're going to come in, and they come full gallop. They hit those concrete, basically concrete abutments. At that time, they are stone. Horses down. And horses go down. Men go flying through the air. Now, what does everybody see at the rear of the column? Everyone at the rear of the column hears gunfire, guns blazing. The echoes are coming off the buildings. Now the men in front of them are starting to fall and fly off of the horses. And they're like, oh, Oh, my shit. God, what is happening? <laughs> yeah. Things are very bad. Things are very bad. That was their, that was their WTF moment. Yeah. They're like, and they're like, okay, now we have a problem. Because now they have to pick these guys up off the ground, get the horses, get them out of town. And here come the, the two pickets that had just gone off to the northern end of town. They come back and they say, guys, there's a whole column of people coming at us from the northern end of town. And we think they're federal cavalry. So we need to get out of here. Got to go. And thank you. And so now they really freak out because now we got guys we got to pick up, we got to get the horses back, and now we have federal cavalry coming at us. So these guys decide we're going to hightail it out of town now, no guns blazing, get south of town to safety. What they don't realize is they just ran away from a column of civilians who was coming to find out what the hell was going on <laughs> in town. <laughs> so Jenkins cavalry literally retreated from a bunch of people uh. who just were seeing <laughs> what is going on 
and they encamp themselves for the night with heavy picket lines south of Chambersburg <laughs> and don't return to the 15th in the morning. And then they're really pissed off <laughs> because they had a bad night. And then they realized that they were pushed out of town just by, by calling civilians. By themselves. <laughs> they pushed themselves <laughs> out of town. To see what was going on. Like, run away. Right. And so on June 15th, they treat Chambersburg the same way they treated Greencastle, yeah. only a little more rough, yeah. uh, because now they're embarrassed that they were basically dethroned on their great glorious <laughs> ride into Chambersburg. And bo- and think about that. That's the head, basically the the head of Lee's column. <laughs> First impressions. In. First impressions yeah. are a wonderful thing. <laughs> and now these guys are just coming in pell-mell, and now you have to think, okay, what's the rest of this column going to look like when they come in through here? They also smell bad, too. Yeah. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Bad. Yeah, they do smell pretty bad. So that was my first WTF moment, just because it's my hometown, and I wanted to... Shout no, out to love it. Shout love out to it. Jenkins Calvary. It's always good stories coming out of Chambersburg, and if they thought that was bad, just wait till they get a load of John Burns. That was uh, a good one without <laughs> fire. He's yeah. gonna love me. That yeah. was a Chambersburg story without fire. That was a good one. Yeah, no, hey, like, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler. Uh, so my second WTF. We're going back to the Overland campaign. We're gonna start at the beginning. Uh, first major battle of that campaign occurs on May fifth to sixth of eighteen sixty four. It is the Battle of the Wilderness. Uh, it is my favorite battle of the entire Civil War. Out of all the battles, it's my favorite to study. It's my favorite battlefield to visit. Um, and you can ask uh, my co-host Cody sitting in the audience here. He and I hiked. Shout uh, out to Cody. Shout out to Cody. Yeah. Uh, we uh, hiked a bunch of Saunders Field trails last time we were there, and we got devoured by all the spider webs across the trail. But it's still very much a wilderness even today. Uh, so it's so <laughs> fascinating to think about. Um, and really, you don't get the perspective of that battlefield and just how chaotic that fighting was until you walk it yourself. So the wilderness, for those of you that don't know, uh, was the nickname for the second growth forest. It was about, I believe, 700, no, not 700, that's way too big. (laughs) 70 square miles of forest uh, that was used for timbering to fuel ironworks in the area. You had the Spotswood Furnace, you had Catherine Furnace. These are all places that are going to be part of the Chancellorsville campaign a year prior. So that's another thing. These armies are going back to the same battlefield, so it's kind of like the Manassas feeling, you know? You fight here twice, and it didn't go so well for one side. We've been here before. Yeah, we've been down this road before. Uh, But there is a difference uh, this time, because General Grant is riding with the Army of the Potomac, and he is going to be telling them, you know, you, where Lee goes, you will go also. You will pitch into the enemy at the soonest possible opportunity. Uh, so Grant and Meade, George Meade, commander of the Army of the Potomac, still in command after Gettysburg. Uh, they're trying to move the Army through the wilderness of Spotsylvania County as quickly as possible. They're trying to get south towards Spotsylvania Courthouse. It's a crossroad intersection. Sound familiar? That's the whole reason we fight here at Gettysburg is for the roads. We also have those roads down in Spotsylvania Courthouse. Uh, so there was not an idea, for at least on Grant and Meade's side, to fight a battle in the wilderness. Uh, but Robert E. Lee, with a smaller army, decides the best way I can beat these guys is to bottle them up. Bottle them up here in the wilderness and use uh, my smaller numbers, <coughs> fight defensively and aggressively. Lee wants to get another Chancellorsville. He wants to attack, wants to cause confusion and chaos like he did uh, on May 2nd, 1863 with Stonewall Jackson. But uh, there is a difference uh, this time around. Because while the Confederates get there, they have very similar orders that they had at Gettysburg. Do not bring on a general engagement until the army's concentrated. You have Richard Ewell on, run ro- on one road, George Turnpike. You have A.P. Hill on another. There's three miles of forest that separate those roads. So everyone is spaced out and pretty much fighting individually. So when Richard Ewell reaches Saunders Field on the Turnpike, he stops. 
And when, then the next thing that happens is something he wasn't expecting. The Union attacks. It takes them a couple hours, but they attack. And it's so out of character for the Union Army to be acting this aggressively uh, in the South. And so it starts the Battle of the Wilderness. And there's still this three-mile gap of forest. And the fighting is so disorganized. The trees are so dense. They're very skinny. They're only about 60 to 80 feet tall. And it looks almost like a bamboo jungle than an actual forest in Virginia. And you couple that with briar bushes. You couple that with little runs and streams and marshes. And also, note all of this undergrowth is on hills and ridges. This is the last place you want to fight a Civil War battle. And even Lee was saying, oh, man, you know, last time I fought here, I lost a lot of good people, Stonewall Jackson being one of them. You know, I'm not too big on it, but nevertheless, the fighting is kicking off. Union is attacking all around. So our story is going to be in the morning of May 5th. So while the Saunders, fight, Saunders Field fighting is starting to go, uh, get underway, down three miles to the south on the Orange Plank Road, you have A.P. Hill and the Confederate Third. Third Corps. Uh, they have only one regiment of Union Cavalry in front of them as the only resistance. It's the 5th New York Cav. They're about 500 strong. They're facing about 20,000 Confederates. And they're still delaying Hill. <laughs> this is Sparta. This is, yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing, because exactly. right, right in the front of Hill's columns on the Orange Plank Road on May 5th is good old Henry Heath. And what happened the last time he was delayed by cavalry? Uh, <laughs> a year prior. Don't bring on a general engagement. Don't bring on a general engagement. So he's yeah, acting cautiously. So uh, at some points, we're going to get to uh, the whole point of this uh, attack was to get to the Orange Plank Road, Brock Road intersection. It's the vital strategic objective and tactical objective of this battle. And about two to three miles away from this intersection, uh, going west, there is a field. It's the field of the Widow Tap Farm. Uh, it's a pretty large field for those of you that have been there. Uh, it's one of the only open spaces on the wilderness battlefield. So Lee is sitting under a tree with A.P. Hill around, I would say, probably eight or nine in the morning. It's early in the morning that this happens. Um, and they're kind of conversing on what's happening in front. And Hill's like, yeah, man, I think I got a lot of Union Cavalry up there. And Lee's saying, hey, you know, I get it, <laughs> but I need you to move faster. And also, just FYI, Lawn Street's delayed. He's not going to be joining us today. So, you know, get moving. Um, and at the same time, Jeb Stewart, you know, famous Confederate cavalry commander, rides up as well. Uh, there was a huge cavalry battle igniting about another three miles south on the Catharpin Road. Every, all the roads in the wilderness are spread out. There's just force in between it. So Stu got Stewart. You got Lee. You got A.P. Hill all sitting in the same field and just going about their business, looking at maps, their aides. Uh, Stewart's aide, Alexander Butler, lays down beneath the tree and takes a nap. You've been up all night. You're going to take a nap in the morning. And then 200 yards away from them, the other end of the field, the northern end of the field, appeal, appears a line of blue. They just materialize out of the forest. Uh -oh. It's about 50 to 60 Union soldiers. All the Confederate infantry, three miles up the road that way into the woods. They're not going to be available. The other Confederate infantry, another four miles down the other way. No Confederate soldier or unit is in this vicinity. It is just Lee, Hill, and Stewart and their staff. <laughs> and they look out. And there's a, this is what I love. This is probably one of my funny, the funniest story that I could pull from this. Um, you have 
a depiction of this. One of the accounts, and this one has been poked uh, holes in a lot, is the reaction on Lee Stewart and Hill's part seeing these Union soldiers emerge 200 yards away. These guys see them on the other side of the field, and they start marching, bayonets fixed, but slowly start advancing towards them. Uh, according to this account, you had Lee get up and just walk away. Walks towards the Orange Plank Road, shouting for Walter Taylor, his aide. Uh, Major Taylor. Major Taylor. Taylor. <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> just walks get me away. The hell out of here. Just walks Let's away. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> this is where it gets funny. Stewart stands up, stands straight and erect, head held high like this, and just stares at the guys. And then you have A.P. Hill, <laughs> who, with his uh, staff officer, just sits, uh, sits very still on the stump and looks at the ground. <laughs> 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 So it's like, oh man. Oh dear. Now, what's even funnier is that this has been this is the account that people say is inaccurate. Uh, the more accurate account comes from Stewart's aide, <laughs> Alexander Boatler. He <laughs> was napping, by the way, and this is according to his account. He awakens to the sound of galloping and finds all the generals in full flight from the field, followed by their respective aides and couriers. At one point, he sees Lee on Traveler galloping down the Orange Plank Road away from the front lines. A.P. Hill, whose horse had ran off in the scurry, uh, is running after him on foot. (laughs) 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 You're just like, WTF? This is like the best army the Confederates have to offer, and these guys are booking it. Uh, And Butler is saying, you know, I expected every moment to hear that crashing volley uh, ripping things up around me. I mean, imagine you're these Union soldiers. And I mean, most, most likely these guys were lost. It's three miles of just undergrowth. They tumble out into the first open area they can find, and there's a whole Confederate staff. Looks like generals, but we can't really see from that far away. For, sat, for the reasons that be, uh, the Union officer in charge orders an about-face, and as soon as they appear, they turn around and materialize back into the forest. Panic over. They had no idea that the prize that lay in front of them. You had Robert E. Lee. Jeb Stewart and A.P. Hill right in front of you. That fight was over. It was so close. <laughs> now, now that's the, you know, that gets you into the what ifs of, you know, right. if Lee gets captured, does the war end? Probably not. No, they'll find somebody to replace him. Maybe James Longstreet. Maybe he doesn't get shot on May 6th the next day. Uh, you know, there's so many ways you can do that, but that has always just been the funniest wow. story from the wilderness. I'm like, these guys were 100 yards away from bagging the most dangerous and most popularized commander in the Confederate military. And they just turned around and walked away. So WTF to that one. Good job. Good job, guys. I I just, I'm just, it's one of those like, oh my God, you know, it's like a hair pulling moment if you're watching this on the sidelines, but they didn't know. And I'll give them that, you know, it's a confusing mess. They probably thought they were all going to get captured or shot too. Right. Well, they turned around and got out of there. Just so. like uh, run away. Yeah. Everybody, everybody's yeah. like run away at wilderness. It's a big. But thing. Uh, yeah, that AP Hill running after Lee <laughs> is probably one of the funniest images. <laughs> sir, <laughs> sir. I bet, and I bet sir. you anything, AP Hill, if he had lived long enough, he would have been like Alexander Butler. Come on, man. You're like I didn't run. Okay. You did me so dirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Killing me, man. I, I was. I walked out of there. You know, it's one of the, one of those things. It's yeah. it's good. <laughs> yeah. Organized organize retreat. An organized route. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. So yeah. my uh, my second story, I guess, like Avery, I'm sticking with the theme. Like his is overland. Mine are, mine are out in the West, roughly in the 62 to 63 era uh, of the war. So this one also involves Grant in a loose way, but not, not so much. So uh, I will first start by asking you guys, uh, what is the oldest profession? Like, bingo. So... Uh, so Forts Henry and Donaldson have fallen, um, you know, in early 1862. Nashville falls by February of 1862. 
That's the first uh, Confederate capital to fall, and it is never relinquished. Uh, it is Country held. Music begins. It is, yeah, it is held by. That's where the sadness comes from. It is held. Wow. It is held by the Union Army oh, for the uh, for the entirety of the war. Um, you know, uh, Andrew Johnson, future president of the U.S., is instituted as the military governor uh, and things like that. So, with with you know a stationary Union Army, uh, you have a bunch of stuff that's going on. So, just to provide some perspective here, so the the prostitute population of Nashville prior to the Union Army arriving was only about 200 women um and by by the time that you know shiloh has played out in 18 in april um you know william rosecrans has moved about 50,000 additional federal soldiers into into nashville so you have you know a force that's been there and and they've been occupying the area for the entirety of the time they've you know they've had the city and they've they've been building these fortifications because nathan bedford forrest is in the area john hunt morgan's in the area and they're they're the only real coordinated, organized Confederate force, and they're just sort of harassing the uh, the, the the Federals that are there. Um, and once these fifty thousand guys show up, you know they're they're going to engage in a few more of these raids and more or less just drive off Hunt and, and Forrest for for a long time. It sort of ends any realistic Confederate threats in the area. So thus begins a long time of idleness with a lot of Federal soldiers. You know, in the area. So suddenly, the the prostitution population in Nashville is going to swell. And by um, by like May or June of 1863, there are 1,500 prostitutes, and they all exist within like a three quarter mile stretch of town. And it's it's called the Smoky Row. Um, Interesting. <laughs> so as as you could imagine, right? Soldiers with a lot of downtime and a lot of you know back pay that's caught up to them and. You know, idle thoughts and loneliness. They are going to take advantage of their their areas. And as as the Union Army, I don't know how to delicately. There's, there's downtime in areas. Area. Yeah, I don't know how to like delicately put that. So we'll just walk into all the euphemism traps. We'll just walk into the euphemism. So, um, so the Union Army starts to encounter a different enemy. Uh, there's no longer bullets flying through through the army, but there's now VD running rampant. The army is getting very sick, and that is making a lot of these guys unable to man their garrisons, do any sort of fatigue duty, or God forbid they get attacked. None of the, not a lot of these guys are going to be in shape to fight. So they're, they're stressed out about this, and they're like, what do we do about this? Like, there's two, they, we, we start grouping up a lot of these women and taking them out of town, but they just come right back into town. And like, the void that's filled behind also blooms a whole different, you know, uh, I guess... What am I looking for? Like another ingredient to the to the soup down there. You have a vacuum that's created by all these white women that are being taken out of the town and left. Now you have an African American prostitution ring that is just oh, wow. springing up, and so now you have like a southern town with a massive group of black people living in the town. In addition to that, Fort Nagley and a lot of these other fortifications that have been built uh, around Nashville have been built by a lot of the the local African American population. So the Union Army is trying to figure out a lot of things that aren't involving an attack from a rebel army, and uh, and they're 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 lost now because we keep taking them out of town. They keep coming back, and this is just what do we do? Um, so what they're going to do in classic Union Army style, they're going to just commandeer things. You know, we're taking this now. So there's going to be a Captain John Newcomb, and now he's a civilian captain, kind of like the love boat captain. You know, he's a captain. His name's but, Newcomb. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Newcomb. Nice. Um, but he, uh, you know, Dumb. he's Dumb. he's going to have this sort of. He's going to have this like riverboat 
gambler cruise bar. Just not so much for the partying, <laughs> but like, you ever seen the movie Maverick? It's like one of those like old timey steamships for a river. And um, they're gonna gather up as as many women as they can. It's about 100 and 150 women. They're gonna plop plop them on this barge, and they're just gonna send them up the river because maybe we can take them far enough away that they won't come back. So the goal is Louisville. Wow. We're going up the Sunny river, Sunny and we're going to Louisville. <laughs> And Louisville, you know, hears about the floating whorehouse, as it's called, that's coming towards them. And as excited as maybe some local soldiers are at the time, the, the police department is like, no thanks. So as the, as the barge approaches, they start to see that there is a massive force of police officers on the dock. And they're like, no, 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 you are not coming here. So they're like, crap, what do we do? So they continue further up the river, and they keep running into this, you know, unwelcome sort of, you're not touching our docks with your trash. And uh, so they return back to Nashville. And they're like, what do we do? They, they can't figure it out. And meanwhile, Newcomb, this, this poor guy, has had his ship requisitioned, meaning like, sorry, ours. Um, and these women are, like, rightly so. They're pissed off. So they've not really been considerate of their accommodations. So, you know, in addition to the obvious too many people in a small space, the facilities are terrible. They've been like, oops, psh. Stuff's falling off the walls. They're not breaking things, and they don't care. So he's incurring a tremendous amount of personal damages. This man's wallet is taking a hit, um, and he's not really happy about this. And he's not really being supported by anybody. The provo marshal, whose idea it was to get them out of town, just kind of brought them to the ship, put them on the ship, and as soon as they left, it's like, see ya. <laughs> and uh, so, so it's basically Newcomb and his crew trying to like contain this just madness happening on his ship. So they get back, everybody's off, and, and the Union Army is still like, all right, well, that didn't work either. So what do we do? And it actually becomes one of the first and maybe only time in U.S. history where the regulation and the permitting of the sex trade is enacted. So they're like, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So what they're going to do is they're going to sanction a whole bunch of civilian doctors to work with the Army doctors, and they're going to start opening these clinics and things like that, and they're going to have these women come in for medical checkups. And wow. those who are fit for duty <laughs> are given a pass. And, uh, you know, you, you get your mark and you can go do your thing, girl. And, uh, you know, and, and those who are not are, are taken and, and not against their will. They're taken to these, like, off-site facilities that are sort of out of town and they're given medical care. And they're, they're taken not so much against their will because this is probably the first time in a lot of these women's lives that they're getting access to health care. So they're going to go pretty freely, and a lot of them will be cured of things like that, and they'll go back to work. And the ones who can are just grateful they got whatever health care they can. They go about their lives. But the Union Army is just going to sort of now have this process to keep their bored soldiers in place. It's like, all right, well, we'll just we'll regulate things. And, you know, if you get sick, hey, you, you're out of here. Go to the doctor. And, like, you know, soldiers, and, and, it, and it works. The most, like, the, the WTF moan about all that on top of all this is that it works. The Union Army gets a lot healthier. They're a lot less rowdy um, and things like that. So life sort of goes on until, you know, the, the climactic fighting in the West takes place later in, in 1864 where, you know, Morgan and Hun and, and Hood and all these guys get smashed at the Battle of Franklin. But that's sort of my, you know, weird WTF is like, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, guys. Like, you know, you hear a lot about these battles uh, you hear a lot about the campaigns. If you're super nerdy, you get into the uniforms and stuff. And, and <laughs> like, you know, like I'm a big baseball guy, and I, can, I feel like, you know, I'm nerdy. I can ramble off like West Point guys, like baseball players. It's like, you know, that kind of stuff. We hear that stuff all the time, yeah. especially here in Gettysburg, right? Like, we're like listening to this story all the time. But like, first time I ever heard this story, I was like, what the? F like, yeah. this is great. <laughs> like, dad didn't tell me this one, and rightly so, because it's like pretty naughty. Um, but, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. And then as far as Newcomb goes, after the war, he's going to be in D.C., and he's going to file a claim, you know, like, hey, you guys owe me some money. 
and uh, and he's gonna get paid. Uh, and he doesn't dictate the amount of the money that he gets paid. He just sort of submits his list of damages, uh, and he won't really get any real grief. And they'll give him a little over five thousand dollars, which you know we were talking about two million dollars earlier, yeah. but like even five grand back That's, in the eighteen sixties, eighteen sixty five, that was a shit ton of money. Yeah. So um, you know they, he was yeah. very grateful to get that, yeah. and then he just kind of just disappears back into antiquity. There's not a lot of written record about what happens to him after that. But you know that judging from that, I would say he was happy with what he got because he just disappears no no appeals and things like that but all, all i can think about is yeah. proud mary by Creedence clearwater revival absolutely yeah <laughs> that, that would be the song to sum up this whole thing yeah a whole lot of that makes yeah. you wonder so yeah like. so the uh the the board union army had to deal with a, a different kind of enemy in the downtimes between campaigns in, uh, in like, the western you theaters. should come and speak at the national museum of civil war medicine in frederick because they need to know this story i'll they, do that yeah. like for, yeah. i'll do that for real though like yeah. medical it's a huge medical Mm -hmm. Revolutionary story for mm -hmm. sure. I mean, yeah, you, you don't hear much about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, considering like all the the touchiness with that subject today, like this was a, like at the time of war, there was like the the Union Army's whole perspective was we have such bigger fish to fry than dealing with this right now. So like, if this is what's Let's happening, and this is a yeah. quick way to fix it. Like, do it because God forbid we have a whole bunch of sick guys and suddenly these rebs show up and we're like, oh, I got the clap, I can't fight. Yeah, like, you know, like <laughs> things like that. So they so just they, they wanted to clean this it was up. A strategic decision. Yes, this was yeah. a military. Yeah, so that's you know yeah. one of my more untabletop conversations. You're not gonna hear that. That's a barroom chat. So thanks yeah. for thanks not, for listening in the yeah. bar. Yeah, not yeah. your father's civil war stories. Right. right. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Maybe that's what we should have titled it. Not your father's civil war. Yeah. Not your dad's. <laughs> yeah. Dad's, right. Now you can see. Moms. Now you can see why we don't get on panels a lot <laughs> with that one. Yeah. Uh, um, so I can't. <laughs> I hate following you, dude. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. I should have made it. you laugh. Yeah, hashtag sorry, not sorry. <laughs> About uh, the fire. You are not sorry. No. I know. <laughs> Unhumble. I'm, I'm so glad that you guys have joined me with this because you guys have amazing stories coming out here. Yeah, thanks us. for having us, John. Yeah, oh, thank absolutely. You. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. So my last one, uh, I'm going off script. Because oh. I can't top that. <laughs> yeah. We're yeah. going rogue. Yeah, Curveball. We're, we're going rogue. rogue. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I'm going to stick with the fields around us here. Uh, so if you go out onto the battlefield and you go basically across from the Kadori barn where the federal line is, you'll see the line of artillery batteries there. And they were the batteries that were involved in checking Kemper's uh, Virginians as they were coming across. They were basically there flanking uh, enfilade fire down onto Kemper's brigade. And I remember hearing this story, and it's footnoted. <laughs> I, I made sure of that. Uh, when, when I first started in, in uh, living history and interpretation and all that, I was a tender age of 12. And, a wee uh, lad. And, yes, I was a wee lad at that time. They made me, they made me run the powder from the limber to the gun. We had, we had four original Napoleons, which was amazing. And what we Boom. would do is, you heard about that 12-pound uh, thing that, that the they were using. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what we would do is we would use full war rounds in a Napoleon. So we had just over two and a half pounds of powder <sighs> when this thing would go off. And so this is 1994, three? Uh, no earplugs. So this is why. <laughs> That's why John wife, yells when he talks. This is why I can't hear my, this is why I can't yeah. hear my wife. He's like, what? And uh, so when I started in, in artillery stuff, I heard artillery stories. And I heard things from the Battle of Gettysburg because I grew up in Chambersburg. And one of the stories that one of the men had uncovered happened right across from the Kadori barn uh, in, in one of the federal batteries over there. And they are trying 
to check this major assault by Kemper's Brigade as Kemper's Brigade is starting to get flanked by the Vermonters. And, and everything is going to hell in a handbasket for Kemper's Brigade, but they're also getting very, very close to some of the artillerymen up there. So close that they're picking off the artillerymen, right and left. Well, beside these artillery batteries and helping to support are infantry regiments. So you're a battery commander or you're commanding one of the guns. Your guys are getting picked off. What do you do? Canister. Well, that's number one. <laughs> Run. That's a very, that's a very important Immediately. thing. Immediately. Always use that canister round. So they are firing canister. They're getting hit by infantry fire. And the commander's like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? I don't have enough guys to run this gun. He turns around, and he goes, you, you, and you, come up here. So he pulls guys out of the infantry line. These guys should know what they're doing. They've been seeing artillerymen in action for two and a half years. Come up here, and Good you luck. take over this part of the gun. You go this part, you go this part, and you come back here. So, so you have newbies, as we would call them, on the gun. Greenhorns. Yeah, yeah. So you can imagine what could happen. So everything's going smoothly for a little while. Kemper's brigade is coming up. They're getting slammed by this canister fire that's in front of them. Guys are, you know, doing their job. Everything's going well. And then the captain of the battery calls for double canister. Uh, <laughs> double canister. <laughs> You've got new guys on the gun. You've just called for double canister. What do these new guys do? Charge double charge it. <laughs> exactly. What they do is they say, well, we need double canister, which means we also need double the amount of powder. <laughs> Bring it on. Right, oh, right. No. <laughs> this is the hey, y'all, watch this yeah. moment. Yeah. Hold my beer. Were you there? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is me. This is actually a me story. I was a time traveler. Yes. Hold my beer. Watch yeah. us double load this. This is, after, this is after Pat was like OSHA checking the whorehouses. He went to this. This is totally safe. Yeah, Trust me. I'm OSHA certified. This. So these federal infantrymen who are now being artillery decide we're going to throw this round down the, down the tubes. They put canister and powder. Obviously, it's connected. And then they decide they're going to throw another round down the, down the barrel with canister in front of that. Now, in, in, you know, you're going to think that this thing's going to open up like a hot dog roll when this thing goes off. No. So they get everything done. They, they pick the bag through the vent hole. They put the primer down in. They take it off, pull the lanyard. These guys are engulfed in smoke. <laughs> the guys around them can't see the gun anymore. <laughs> and they, they're thinking, oh, my God, these guys just blew themselves oh, off. No. They're right gone. Right off the face of the earth. They're yeah, gone. Yeah, yeah, they're gone. <laughs> and all of a sudden, when, the, when a little bit of breeze hits, they're still standing there. <sighs> what had happened was when the gun went off, it jumped the locks in the gun. Mm. And they're standing there, and they're like, where the hell's the tube at? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's just a carriage. Of these guys. It's only it's only like twelve hundred pounds in the air. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Yeah, yeah it's only twelve hundred. Not pounds a big deal at all. I got it. Can so of corn. Yeah, we're fine. Yeah. Can of so, corn. So they're Scare looking that around. whistle coming. Down. Yeah. So they're looking around like, where did this thing go? There's nothing left. Oh man. Finally, some of their comrades in the infantry unit that was just behind them to to the oh, side no. said, "We think we saw the barrel go over <laughs> here." And they found the barrel a couple hundred yards behind them in the field. <sighs> and all it had done was just jump where the track is, where it holds it in place. Yeah. It jumped the lock. Popped off the, the trunnion. And oh. had gone end over end. 
and flew behind him. Look, <laughs> you the luckiest <laughs> man ever on an artillery piece. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the other people by standing like a few yards down that maybe by chance were just looking south at that moment and just really <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> being like, what the that's hell? Not <laughs> that's <laughs> not good. Right. That, that, that's not good. What that ammunition, is, <laughs> what, what ammunition are, is Kemper's menu? That is like a Leroy Jenkins moment. Oh, that, it totally is. <laughs> like totally all is. the artillerymen, you guys are just stupid as hell. <laughs> right, right. Can you imagine <laughs> what the other guys on the battery thought when they saw these infantrymen just being what like, What are you oh, doing? There goes the tube. We have rounds for that. <laughs> right. Right, so Jesus. This, but that is that is quintessential oh, wow. young American male running an artillery piece for the first time, and they're like, "Oh, he must want double canister. He wants double the charge in there." <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, put that thing down in there. Let's go to work. That's a true testament to the whole citizen soldier. You got to remember during the Civil War, these guys are not soldiers; they are uh, farmers, laborers, whatever. Yeah. And suddenly we we're like, "Operate this piece of military equipment with precision. Go." <laughs> No right. training. No, that, Go. That definitely is a Go. hold my it's beer moment for sure. Right. You know. Just imagine <laughs> taking a guy who's 11, 11 Bravo oh today, infantryman, yeah. and being like, "Go run that one five five one time and see what happens." Yeah, like I, I live. It would be the same. Yeah, I live in Frederick, Maryland. We have the Battle of Monoxy Junction. A large force of the yeah. federal guys that are there. You know, they're they're sort of occupying this area because they're untrained. It's the end of the war. They already kind of knows we're winding down. Yeah. You go here, but you know. In case people attack, you just got to be ready for it, but we're not going to train you too much. And then suddenly it's like, <laughs> here's 18,000 veterans. They're like, ah! So, you know, there's just a whole <laughs> lot of... you got the Potomac home. whole lot of just throwing <laughs> you out there. Like, we'll just That's see what I sticks. <laughs> see what yeah. sticks. Yeah. I also live in Frederick. Yeah, Pat and I just found out we were neighbors, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to hang out. The glory of networking. Be friends. Uh, but we wanted, to, we wanted to do something different for you that you will not see at the CWI Summer Conference. Yeah. Uh, because we, we thought that the title would probably throw some people off. Uh, but I, I thought it was very important for us to do this, some of the stories that we don't hear about every day on battlefield tours or on documentaries yeah. or things like that. Uh, and I think that's very important to show the human side of, of, this, of this conflict. Yeah, for sure. And to, and to also allow us to take a moment to laugh at some of these events because yeah. it, is a, it is a WTF moment. And you do have to come at this with a level of seriousness, but you also have to remember that these these people had you know humorous sides too. They did stupid things. They got caught up in weird things. Uh, I just uncovered another story where a guy thought it was a great idea when he found an artillery shell that he was going to try to open it with a hammer. Yeah, <laughs> smart. Like, sure. One Darwin Why Award not? coming up. He he, he, put, he put on a railroad tie and smacked it with like a sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like John's saying, people are always people. Yeah, and, during and his commanding officer was more mad that he tore the railroad up <laughs> than him. And he's he taking that spike. Railroads. Another, another weird incident where he was untouched. Oh, man. But the railroad was like destroyed right there, you know, because he got more damage to the railroad than the enemy. Yeah. Shell and hit it. <laughs> but yeah, these are the kind of things like almost like we would read in the old hardtack and coffee or something like that, where somebody does something weird and silly. These are average Americans who are trying to get through this as best as they can. There's going to be some silly moments. There's going to be some wild and crazy moments. Uh, and I'm glad that these two guys have joined me this evening to to go over some of them. I know we have a ton more that we we can oh, talk ton. about, but we don't oh, have the daylight and the time because we'll have to do it again. Yeah, part I think two. I think we should. Yeah, a part two. Yeah, <laughs> and and uh, like hot shots. Yes, yes. 
But I want to thank Avery Lentz. I want to thank Patrick McGuire for coming out this Thanks, evening. John. Thank you, John. Uh, I want to thank everybody watching online. Uh, who's What's up, everybody? Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. This is awesome. What's thank up? You. Those three things with Pat people. Love you guys. Tattoo story and battles and banter. Thank you guys very much. Yes, we're running three live streams at one time. This is amazing. <laughs> three live uh, streams. Yeah, different <laughs> angles. Uh, but I think I that's called syndication. Cool. Is it? Yeah, we're syndicated now. Okay. Part of something. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I want to thank all of you for coming out because it's very important that we keep uh, coming together and doing this. Uh, it's now monthly. Uh, and uh, I know that I'm very appreciative of you all coming out and, and taking part in this. I know that Gary Owen is very appreciative that you all come out because we keep filling the place up. And uh, I'm so happy that we could do free programming for, for everyone once a month and uh, you know have something different for you to listen to uh, on a month-to-month basis. Uh, next month, just so you know, uh, Steve Fan is going to be here. and he's Steve Fan. Yes. It's going to be a fantastic voice. Fantastic voice. You can argue. What up, Steve Fan? Steve You're out Dude, there. Yeah. Uh, and he's going to be talking <laughs> about uh, Early's 1864 campaign. And I'm also working on one. i got to solidify a date for it, but we're talking about having a whole thing on sea shanties. Uh, with with uh, uh-huh. with a possible sing along. Jimmy Buffett will be Although here. I will not sing. <laughs> he will not actually be here. Uh, we might do that for my one year uh, one in September. But thank you all for coming out. Please stick around if you like. Network, drink, have some food, do whatever. You want.